Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. So if you would, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 12 through 20. Mark 1, 12 through 20. And if you could, just stand to your feet. Turn there. If you're able, stand to your feet. And we're going to read the Word of God together. Mark 1, 12 through 20. Mark 1, 12 through 20. This is the Word of God. And immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So, as we've learned uh, previously, Mark moves quickly, and he purposes to move quickly to make specific points with his actual structure, and uh, it's pretty unique about the book of Mark. In today's passage of Scripture, we're going to see one thing communicated in the structure of Mark's writing that if you're not really paying attention, you may completely miss it. You skip over it. The structure points to Christ's sovereignty. And just looking at it at face value, you might not see that, but in fact, that's what's happening here. Uh, In our second overview of Mark, I pointed out that Jesus performed miracles, and he performed miracles for a specific purpose. Uh, One, they pointed back to the reality of what Adam's life or Adam's rule was like in the garden. And two, they also pointed ahead to the reality of Christ ruling in the Messianic kingdom, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, what we call the millennial kingdom. And his miracles proved that he was indeed the long-awaited Messiah who would bring redemption, who would rule and reign in the kingdom just like prophecy in the Old Testament had foretold. And again, I want you to notice how Mark's account is short and to the point. We see just in this short passage here the word immediately used several times. And uh, again, he groups these three things together here for a reason. And I believe the scripture passage is structured in this way to prove this point. First, verses 12 through 13 show us that Christ is sovereign over Satan. Verses 14 through 15 show us that he is sovereign over sin. And verses 16 through 20 show us that he is sovereign over sinners. In a very practical way, it also gives us Uh, a guideline or an example of what it looks like to engage in ministry. And I want you to be certain, I want you to understand that the job of ministry is not just for the clergy. It's not just for preachers and missionaries and people like that. You are 
ministers of Christ, and you have been brought into the ministry of reconciliation. And what that means is you are called to help sinners be reconciled unto God through the message of the gospel. So don't think that because you're not on staff at a church somewhere or you don't have a title that you're not a minister. You are indeed a minister of Christ. Uh, we, um, so it gives us a guideline or example of how we would do ministry. We covered verses 12 and 13 a few weeks ago and even went a bit beyond that, but I want to review those a bit and point out a few things for added context this morning. First of all, my first point, uh, this passage, Jesus is sovereign over Satan. He is sovereign over Satan. It says immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and this was an act of God that aligned with the will of God. Just stop and think about that for a second. The Spirit of God drove Christ out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That was part of God's will. And it was for the purpose of proving that Christ was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. The Second Corinthians refers to Satan as, quote, the God of this world. And we don't need to get too confused about that. It's not a statement claiming that the devil has sovereign rule over God in the realm of the earth. That's not what it's saying. But rather, this is a statement in one way referring to the hearts of sinners. These people who are blinded, so distracted by the schemes of the enemy in the world, which, which appeals to the flesh. That's how he gets us. The enemy appeals to our flesh. And uh, in their words and deeds, the lost, they worship Satan as if he is the God of this world, as if he is a deity in charge of all things in this world. They pay homage to him every day just in the way they behave, in their words and in their actions. Satan's arrogance has not waned one bit since his initial fall into original sin. He revels in this false fealty from sinners. And this worship is, of course, futile because he's not God. He is a created being. Satan is not God. Don't ever let someone tell you that somehow it's God versus Satan, mano y mano. That's called dualism and it's heresy. That's, God has no enemy. God has no other, as we heard Billy point out in Scripture today. There's no equal to God. He could, he could speak the words and all things would cease to exist. Amen? So we need to understand the otherness of God and how powerful he is. Satan is not his enemy. Satan is the enemy of the saints. He's our enemy. But Adam fell into Satan's hands because sin and death reigned from that point forward. This rightfully gave the devil free reign in the earth to wreak havoc on humanity. He's used his dark forces in military fashion to invade the hearts and minds of humanity, to twist every truth, to turn every good gift into a vain thing. And God's good and perfect creation has been maligned and corrupted before the face of God himself. And worse, his own image bearers are fallen. His own image bearers are now depraved, twisted into something other than what God designed in the beginning having no desire within themselves to commune or to know the one true God. And throughout history, we see just this historical record of Satan simply making the goats follow him by means of deception and appealing to their flesh. 
The serpent conquered Adam and now the dragon sought to do the same to Jesus there in this wasteland. He was bent on taking Jesus down as well. And the way the serpent sought to do this, knowing who Christ really was, Jesus being the Word made flesh, the Word from the beginning as we know in John 1.1, He could not appeal to Him in exactly the same way He did to deceive and cause Adam and Eve to fall dangling secret knowledge in front of them. Like, uh, well, God knows something you don't know, right? Uh, if you want to be like God, you need, to, you need to eat of this fruit. But in this case, Satan knew Jesus was the rightful king. He knew that Jesus was the one with sovereignty. Satan knew of Christ's former glory before he, he ever became a man. Think about that for a moment. And now standing before him is the rightful king of glory, the true sovereign king of the universe. He hasn't eaten anything for almost six weeks, and he's all alone, all alone. Here in a treacherous part of the desert, most likely between Jericho and Jerusalem, Christ is delivered up on a silver platter, if you will, by the Holy Spirit to be tested by the devil himself. This, this area between Jericho and Jerusalem, Krista and I visited there, and it is, it is indeed a terrible-looking place. It's just a barren wasteland of, of dirt. There's, there's cr- crags and cliffs and sheer, sheer cliffs and, and no water. And if you can imagine, just one of the most desolate places on the planet. And... Satan believed that in this place and in this condition, Jesus was vulnerable. And in a specific way, knowing where Christ was before in glory and seeing him now in this state, in the desert, the devil sought to give him means to escape his humiliation. He was humiliated. That was his whole ministry. Jesus was humiliated. He was the God of glory who took on the flesh of man. He took on humiliation for you and I. And Satan meant to uh, leverage this and bring Christ down to allow him to escape his circumstances with his infinite glory veiled, the submission of his almighty power, his eternality confined to minutes and hours and days at the mercy of the laws of temporal existence. And his former glorified state having need of nothing, and now his body aching with even hunger pains, utterly alone in a desolate place. And the Bible even mentions the dangerous beasts, that he was among the dangerous beasts. You don't put civilization in a place where there are a whole lot of dangerous animals. Well, in this day and time, there were dangerous animals out out there, therefore there was no one out there. And that's exactly where the Spirit of God took Christ to be uh, tempted by the lion. Now, Satan tempted mankind in the garden with a knowledge, as I mentioned, a knowledge that they did not know or had not known. He told them that God had left them out, that he was keeping something from them. But he tempted Jesus with knowledge that he has already known. His eternal existence that he once had in glory with his father, something that he had laid aside. Do you see? He was tempting him with who he actually is. And Satan came at Jesus and tempted him to retake his rightful place, to take the crown back 
to circumvent the cross. Skip it, Jesus. Just skip the cross. Take the crown now. Take the glory now. Do you see? But all of this would have been at the expense of God the Father's will. And you and I would have been left in our sins. This desert, if you will, was the altar Eden. Is the opposite of Eden. Adam was tempted in a garden where he had everything he could ever want or need supplied for him. He had companionship in the bride that God had given him. He was surrounded by peace and beauty. There were no wild beasts in the Garden of Eden, not the desolate elements of fallen creation. Adam had only faced the spiritual danger of the temptation itself, and yet Adam still failed. The temptation of Jesus was unlike any temptation of any man from the very beginning to the very end until the very last man exists. Christ faced something that no other man will. Imagine first he had waited his whole life to engage in his earthly mission. He had been waiting his whole life to do what God the Father had called him to do. His ministry to fulfill his father's will. He was coronated king at his baptism. And just as he had had that Trinitarian moment and he hears the father's voice and he's anointed by the spirit of God and filled with joy, looking forward to his purpose, to getting out there and doing what God had called him to do. And immediately, Mark says, Jesus is driven out into the desert. You talk about going from a mountaintop experience to a valley, you know, in in short order. Imagine the worst possible circumstances, the hunger, the danger, the harshness of the barren and desolate location, complete isolation. Have you ever been really alone? Have you ever been really alone and felt really alone? Multiply that times 10,000, and here you have the type of isolation that Christ was facing And then the worst possible enemy that you can fathom facing him one-on-one. And folks, the stakes could not have been higher, as I've mentioned before. Just as with Adam, the eternal and spiritual well-being of all generations hung in the balance here in this moment in the desert. You need to understand the weight, the gravity of what's going on here. Jesus had to conquer or all was lost. And of course, we know that Jesus won. He crushed the head of the serpent. He defeated him uh, all growing up in his childhood. He had every kind of temptation that you and I had growing up as kids. The little mischievous things that we did, he was tempted to do those things. He just didn't do them. He did everything, lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And we need to understand that, that this this temptation wasn't just a one and done thing in the garden. This happened over and over with Christ, and yet he still conquered. He lived that perfect light. He defeated, as I said, he defeated the devil in the wilderness. He defeated him again in the garden of Gethsemane. He continues to crush the serpent's head even unto this day. And think about it. Every single time one of his precious elect steps out of the darkness into light, Satan feels the increasing pressure of Christ's foot on his head. We know scripture tells us there is a coming day in the future when all of this will be complete. When his head will be finally crushed and crushed in in finality. Romans 16.20, Romans 
20, Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So he's saying that this is a, it's a um, perpetual crushing, if you will, until the final crushing is over and done with. He will soon crush Satan under your feet. So the king conquered the devil in that desolate place. And we see that afterward the angels came to minister to him. And we should take from this that uh, just after his baptism, and as, as God the Father affirmed at his baptism, this is my son and in him I am well pleased. He passed the test. The worst possible circumstances. Christ reigned sovereign over the dragon. And the Father was pleased once again. Jesus is sovereign over Satan. That's incredible. Amen? Next, verses 14 through 15. Now after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Secondly, we see here that Jesus is sovereign over sin. He's sovereign over sin. Mark doesn't write much about this overlapping period of the ministries of both John the Baptist and, and Jesus. Taking John the Baptist's ministry was taking place in this region, and Jesus' ministry, he was over in Judea. Mark speaks nothing of that at this time. We actually have to go look in Matthew and Luke. They give us a far more detailed account of Jesus' temptation. And John 2 through 4 tells us of Christ's following ministry in Judea and Samaria. We know the accounts that you're probably familiar with, the first cleansing of the temple. If you'll recall, there were two. There was one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end. They were bookends to his ministry. Christ uh, cleansed the temple two different times. And of course, Mark doesn't say anything about that here at the beginning. And then... Um, we also know of the other account of the woman at the well, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and that also took place. But there's a gap here in Mark's account, and, and the reason is because Mark's trying to put the other, uh, another point to this in the structure. He's trying to show us God's sovereignty. In fact, we know that John the Baptist, he stayed there until he was killed, and you don't... <laughs> Remember he said, I must decrease and he must increase. Well, you don't get any more decreased than deceased, right? I, I thought of that this morning. It's kind of a little rhyme there. So uh, you don't get any more decreased than deceased. So, so he was deceased at this point and Jesus' ministry was now increasing and he moved back into Galilee to continue his public ministry and his purpose was to preach the gospel of God. Don't let anybody tell you that Christ's purpose was for any other reason than to preach the gospel. Some unfortunately mistake Christ's purpose as being a miracle worker. And they make it all about God's supernatural, miraculous works. And they just completely miss the point of His whole ministry. Luke 4, 42-43, uh, there's this account of Christ uh, healing so many people, casting out demons. He goes to be alone for a while to pray. In verse 42, it says, When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were eagerly seeking Him and came to Him and tried to keep Him from going away from them. So they wanted Him to stay there because He was healing everybody, and He was casting out demons, okay? In verse 43, look what He says. 
I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. That's why he came. He came to proclaim the gospel. He didn't come to be a miracle worker. The miracle working was to prove he was the son of God. It was just simply proof to say, I am the one you've been looking for, and my purpose now is to preach the gospel, and the miracles are to affirm that I'm God's man in this hour, and this is God's message. Amen? That's what he's trying to get through to them. So through the preaching of the gospel of God, which is, of course, excellent news, uh, I always feel like just saying the good news isn't enough. I want to say the great news. I want to say the excellent news, the awesome news. Like I want, I want it to be really embody what it truly means. It's excellent news that we as desperate, hopeless, fallen sinners can be reconciled to our holy God through the preaching of the gospel of God. It's the gospel that is the power that leads to salvation for every soul the Father has given to Christ Jesus as His inheritance, as His bride. Christ was given authority by His Father God specifically to preach the good news. And the preaching of the gospel works to call out His elect, okay? It's that great sword of truth that divides. And you're either going to wind up on one side of the gospel or the other. As that sword strikes, the sword of truth strikes, it's going to divide families. It's going to divide households. It's going to divide people because some will accept Christ and follow Him and others will reject Christ and there's no way around the division that comes. And that's why Jesus says, I have not come to bring, bring peace, but the sword. It's the sword of truth that brings division. And so that gospel message it calls, it divides and calls out. That's why the church is called the ecclesia, the called out. We're, we're called out from among the world. We're called out from those who are in rebellion. We're called out from those who have rejected Christ. And we know this from Jesus' prayer, this authority that God gave him in John 17, 2. John 17, 2 says uh, Christ is actually praying and he's actually praying in third person and, and he's praying, you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So the Father God gave this precious bride to the Son. Each and every one of these, these people throughout the whole of history that are called His elect, and He has given them, the Father has given them to the Son that they may have eternal life. And this authority in the gospel was given so that He might call them to Himself. It's the bold proclamation of the gospel by which the Spirit of God opens the eyes and sets the soul afire with passion to follow Christ, a desire to serve Christ. And if Jesus is our example... Here it is in black and white and a little bit of red. He came to preach a simple, clear message and His voice is heard in the gospel proclamation. God's voice is heard in the gospel proclamation. All we like sheep have gone astray and the good shepherd has come to gather His own and not one single lamb that is His will be lost. Not one will be left behind. Not one will be abandoned. Of all the Father has given Christ, His Son, every last sheep will hear His voice and they will answer, each and every one will come. The, go the gospel is a proclamation that the King has arrived. 
The way has been prepared and everything has led up to this appointed time in history, the dividing line of all history, this moment in which Christ has come to complete his redemptive work. Verse 15, look, look at that with me. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was proclaiming that the king is here. I've arrived and the kingdom is at hand. It's offered to you, O sinner. Bow no longer to the God of this world. You can repent and turn away from your sin and turn instead to the person of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him and believe and the dark forces will scatter. The hold the serpent had on you will be broken and sin will no longer have power over you. Believer, saints, do you know that today? Do you know that sin has no power over you? Do you know the things that you've been struggling with? You actually have power over that in Christ. You don't have to live your entire life struggling with those things. You simply need to submit those things to the Lord. And He will give you strength to overcome that. If you are struggling with a sin that you have yet to overcome, let me tell you the first thing you do is you turn the lights on. You turn the lights on, and the way you turn the lights on is you tell someone that you know, that loves you, that knows Christ. You, are, you have them hold you accountable. You tell them and get it out in the open, and once it's in the open, then your brothers and sisters in Christ can walk with you through reconciliation and dealing with that sin that you're constantly struggling with. You don't have to struggle with that sin because that sin has no power over you. Amen? If you can hear me this morning, I just really want to press that. If you've got a, a struggle, man, talk to us. Come to your church leadership. We'll cry with you. We'll pray with you. We'll walk through it with you. Amen? First, um, I, want, I want to talk a little bit about this king and this kingdom. What exactly does it mean? Because... There's a lot of confusion about the kingdom. Is it now? Was it then? Is it in the future? What's going on with this whole kingdom thing? Because Jesus is very clearly saying that the kingdom is at hand. Well, folks, here's the reality. You bow to the king and the kingdom is yours. The promise of the kingdom is threefold. And that's why it's confusing. It's threefold. There are different aspects to the fulfillment or the fullness of the kingdom. First, the spiritual kingdom, which is the reality of spiritual blessings for every single believer. It's the spiritual kingdom. The king of glory indwells us, and therefore we have at our fingertips every spiritual blessing for life and godliness. It is there for the taking. These spiritual blessings that Christ has offered to you, and through the word of God, and the washing of the word, and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have all we need to live as overcomers, as conquerors in the spiritual kingdom as it exists now today. But there's infinitely more to come. Do you understand? You have the spiritual blessings now. The kingdom is yours today, but it's now and it's not yet. This is our testing ground. It's our wilderness. This is our hour of temptation as we hold to the promise of eternity. So we hold on to those spiritual blessings knowing that the reality, the completion of it is yet in the future, in eternity. We now live in a spiritual reality, but now we know in part, but soon we will know fully. 
we will understand fully. So second, there's the millennial kingdom, and that is yet still ahead. We have a hope set before us that one day our faith will be turned into sight. We will behold the King and we will physically bow before Christ our Lord. And there is a glorious millennial reign ahead in which Christ will reign as King of the earth, as the offspring of David. And He will occupy His earthly throne for 1,000 years on this earth in the office of a King of man. That's the point. It's not saying he's not going to rule eternally. It's saying he's going to undo everything that that Adam failed to do. He's going to do it the right way. If That's probably a better way to say it. He's going, in every way that Adam failed, Christ is going to come and he's going to conquer. In every way that man has failed, even David failed as a king. His life fell apart after his, his sin and he was never the same after that. But Christ will come and he will rule on the throne of David perfectly for a thousand years. And then, of course, there's the consummate kingdom. The consummate kingdom. And and what I mean by consummate is this is the end of all things. This is uh, when time is no more and Satan and his dark forces will be thrown into the lake of fire. Evil will be vanquished forevermore. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be no sadness, no sorrow, no mourning or pain or death. Death will be dealt a deadly blow once and for all. And for the sinner, sin reigns in their hearts. But when the clear, concise gospel is proclaimed, when the sinner repents and believes in the king, the king indwells them. He takes up residence. He sits on the throne having all authority in their life. And he will have as much authority in your life as you will submit to him and his word. Now, he's got all authority. But the, the outworking of, of how much he uses you in the kingdom and for his purpose really is all about whether or not you're going to submit to the word of God and to what he says in his word. The devil has no rightful place anymore. Christ the king is sovereign over Satan and sin has no power because Christ the king is sovereign over sin. And lastly, Jesus is sovereign over sinners. He's sovereign over over sinners. It is the king who sovereignly chooses and calls the sinner to follow him. Look at verses 16 through 20 there. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he calls them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. To give another example, if you flip a page or two over to Mark 2.16, Mark 2.16, we see the calling of Matthew or Levi. Verse 14 there, I'm sorry, it's verse uh, 2.14, I'm sorry. It says, and he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he stood up and he followed him. There's no time passing here. In all of these accounts, you get a sense of any pushback from any of them. We're not told of any negotiation. There was no back and forth haggling of, okay, Jesus, what's this going to look like for my life? What about this? What about that? We know that these, men's were, these men were all employed and had lives of their own. 
James and John left their dad and the hired servants right there in the boat. They just left. I'm sure dad was real happy about that. Who knows, maybe he was. They followed. As far as manliness goes, when we're looking at these, these guys, these real men, none of these men were weak. None were desperate. None were pushovers. These were rugged, manly men. These were men who were working hard and, uh, and doing what men did in that day and time. Yet Jesus commands each of them, follow me. And they immediately abandoned their livelihood, their way of life, and they followed Jesus at great cost to them. So folks, what can we get out of this? Well, when a king calls, you come. When the king calls, you come. He makes a command, and it's non-negotiable. It's mandated. Jesus, we know He knew of these men. He had already met Andrew while he was the disciple of John the Baptist, and Andrew told Simon Peter about Jesus. So there was a history here with these men. It's very possible in study of Scripture that James and John were Jesus' first cousins. As their mother, uh, Salome, is connected in Scripture with Mary's sister. Regardless, after some time had passed and Jesus re-entered Galilee, so remember there was this time gap, He specifically sought out these men and He called them by name. The same way Billy read that passage this morning in Isaiah. He calls us by name. These were His chosen men, His disciples his future apostles, the founding fathers of the church, and many of them the writers of the divinely inspired scripture that you hold in your hands this morning. You see, he was in one fashion choosing his successors, those who would carry the torch of the gospel to new generations, to new peoples, and to new lands. And when Jesus said greater things, those they will do who follow me. That's what he's talking about. His ministry was right there around the lake of Galilee. 95% right there around that lake. The other 5% down around Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, I have had a ministry of three and a half years in this tiny little area, but those who come after me, they're going to go far and wide. I have called them by my name. They're going to not just be right around this area. They're going to go in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, spreading the gospel everywhere. And look at the kingdom today. I know there are probably yet peoples that need to hear the gospel. There are areas of the world that are unreached, and we need to pray. We need to pray that those people would be reached because we know that when the gospel goes forth to everyone, all nations, tongues, and tribes, then we can pray, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly, that he'll return once the gospel has been proclaimed. But I submit to you today that Scripture is clear and that through the prophetic voice of the proclaimed gospel, his command, follow me, echoes through the ages And with that sovereign command, the eyes of the depraved man is unveiled, the ears of the ignorant are opened, the unrepentant, wayward heart of every lost lamb who hears that familiar voice of the good shepherd, it runs into his arms. There's no haggling. There's no arguing. When the king calls, you follow. 
That's the way it works. That's the way it's always worked. Each of us are called by the grace of God. He calls us by name. Through the proclamation of the good news, we hear his voice. And I know the most immediate reaction, the question we would ask is why? Why would God do this? The question that we should ask is why me? Why me? He loves us. And if we're indeed called by our name and he has called us into the light, we should be infinitely grateful that he's called us out. We are sovereignly moved by the Spirit to respond to his call. Remember what we read a few weeks ago that it's impossible for any man, a fallen, depraved man, they do not seek the Lord, nor can they. There's no way they even can. They're depraved. They're fallen. They have no desire. And yet the Spirit of God regenerates them. He calls them by name, and sovereignly they are moved in the power of the Holy Spirit, and something in them ignites. Their eyes see the truth. Their ears hear the truth. You look at your condition and realize, I am in desperate need of Christ and His redemptive work. And when that happens, folks, you just don't say no. You just don't say no to the king of glory. And we're willing, if you're a true disciple, you're willing to follow him no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Are you? Are you willing to follow him whatever it may cost? If they started going from church to church and imprisoning anyone who claim to be a follower of Christ, would you have the courage, would you be that kind of follower who would say, take me first. I follow Jesus. What if it was the guillotine? What if it was the gas chamber? What if it was the electric chair? Whatever, you name it. What if, what if it meant giving your life? Because that's what it meant for these early Christians. Running from catacomb to catacomb, just to meet with one another in secret, to worship together, and look at what we get to do. We have no laws against it yet. We get to worship in freedom. Folks, Jesus is sovereign over the sinner. He's sovereign over the sinner. In closing, I want to point out a few applications for us. What does this mean for us then? as we look through this passage. Well, I would submit to you this morning that in this passage, Jesus has given us a means to understand how we can be ministers, how we can be his disciples. If he is our example, if we're to fulfill our purpose and have an effective ministry, then we have to do these three things. Number one, because of Christ's authority over Satan, we resist the devil and he must flee. We resist the devil and he must flee. He's got no rightful power over you. And the forces of darkness, yes, they will try to tempt you, try you, do everything they possibly can to derail you. They're going to try to ruin your life, ruin your relationships, ruin everything about your witness for Christ. That's the enemy's goal. But he has no power over you. None. Christ has already won that victory. So the only victory you give the enemy is the ones you give him on your own. Keep your eyes on the king. 
Remember your purpose. Remember that He is our reward and that we will stand before Him one day. Listen, just stop and think for a moment. If this is what it takes, I was telling someone last week, you know, when, when you're, you have a struggle with sin, you have a struggle with something that you've been dealing with and you think about it right before you're about to engage in whatever this thing may be, whether it's gossip or you name it, Ask yourself, is this what I want to be doing when Christ returns? Is this what I want to be caught doing when Christ returns? If that doesn't deter you, then you must not believe that Christ is going to return. His return spurs us on to holiness. But we're going to stand before Him one day, and you should think about the reality of that. Don't you want him to tell you that you fought the good fight? That you finished the race? That you passed your test? Don't you want him to look you in the eyes? Your Lord and Savior who died for you, don't you want him to look in your eyes and say, I am well pleased with you? Isn't that what you want? That's what I want more than anything else in the world. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to ruin my life. I don't want to spend my life on frivolous, pointless things. I want to stand before Him. I think about this often. I want to stand before Him and say, I gave it all. I gave it all. And I know, folks, listen, I look at my life and I know I fall way short of that. God, please don't let it be today. Don't let it be right now. I have so much to do. I have so much growth. But folks, it's, don't, don't keep putting stuff off for another day. Do it now. Follow him now. Do whatever you have to do now. Engage now. Get involved now. Repent now. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. This is it. Don't wait another day, not another moment. You don't know when you're going to stand before God. Number two, preach the gospel message. Proclaim the holiness of God and the lowliness of man. The impossible gulf between us and the cross that bridges that gulf and the eternal hope that we have in Him if we'll place our trust in Him. And don't get distracted We don't need to sweeten the deal for people. We do not need to come to God's rescue and make excuses for Him so that people will see Him in a good light, that He's a fair God. He doesn't need your help. He said everything He needs to say in His Word. Just open the Word and and, and speak the Word and proclaim the Word. That's That's the truth. That's what He wanted us to proclaim. Don't try to change it. You don't need to be clever. Paul says the gospel is the power unto salvation for all who believe. And it takes all the pressure off of you. All you have to do is scatter the seed. Just grab, just scatter the gospel. And wherever it falls, wherever it falls, it's not on you to make it grow. Do you make your garden grow? You plant that seed? Do you go out there every day and dig it up and mess with it and massage it and, you know, to try to make certain that it's going to pop up? If you do that, the seed will die. It'll never come up. We're planting the gospel seed. 
We're throwing it out there and then God himself and the power of the Spirit, there's a miracle that takes place in the heart of man when he calls them by name. So you be faithful to proclaim the gospel and he'll be faithful to call his own. Amen? Takes all the pressure off of you. Number three, train your successors. Train your successors. Christianity is built upon succession. It goes forward because we're purposeful not only to spread the message of the gospel, but also to make disciples that will carry the gospel forward to new people, new lands, new generations. And the primary people that we focus on, folks, is our own children and our friends and the family around us. That's our number one priority for ministry. But if you've got children, they're your number one priority for ministry. Don't miss out on that. Your children, the Bible says, are like arrows in your hand. You don't just grab an arrow and let it fly wherever, do you? Have you ever shot a bow and arrow? That's not how it works. You've seen Robin Hood. You've seen, uh, I don't know, Katniss Everdeen. Arrows are meant for a purpose. Arrows are built. They're meticulously crafted. I've built arrows before, and you have to split the feathers just right, and you have to Put them on the, the shaft of the arrow. You have to find the right kind of uh, arrowhead and, and craft that when you're making primitive weapons. And that's what they're talking about here. Whether the arrowhead was steel or whether it was stone, it's crafted. The arrow is crafted. It's built. It's purposeful. And the purpose for which God gave you children is to craft them and to build them, to point them in the right direction, and when it's time, let them fly. For his kingdom. And that is the whole reason we bring children into the world. That's it. For his kingdom. If you had kids just for you, just for your enjoyment, you, you, you did it all wrong. And it's okay, you can repent. But you can realize that from this point on. And kids, if you're in the room today, and mom and dad are like, hey, look, we've, we look at our lives, we look at how we've been doing things, and, and we're hitting the reset button. We're, we're going to change some things in our family. Kids, it is your job to submit to your parents' leadership as your spiritual leaders. If they decide to make changes in your life, then go with it. Be faithful to your mom and dad. Honor your mom and dad. Honor them. And parents, honor the Lord in how you raise your kids. Craft them, build them, and aim them for the purpose of Christ's kingdom. We've learned from Scripture today that Christ is sovereign over Satan crushing his head. He is sovereign over sin through the effectual preaching of the gospel. He is sovereign over sinners, and he calls and chooses his own disciples. And Because of that, he's given us the authority to walk in his footsteps, and to do so, we must resist the devil. We must proclaim the simple message of the gospel, and we must train our successors, and that is his kingdom purpose for us. That is what he's called us to do. He's already done all the heavy lifting. He's already done all the hard work. All we have to do is submit and follow. Would you pray? Lord, I don't know where anyone in this room stands today with you. Truly, I see the exterior. I don't know what's going on in all of their lives and all of their hearts. Lord, we know that you know the deep recesses of the hearts and minds. We know, Lord, that there's nothing, nothing hidden from you. In this moment of the power of your spirit, would you 
allow anyone in this room or, or, or anyone watching today who hears this message, would you allow them to feel the weight of that knowledge that you know all things and there's nothing hidden from your sight? And that there is coming a day when all the deeds of darkness will be judged. And you will call every single human soul in all of time to stand before you, the living and the dead. And you will righteously make a judgment and pronounce them guilty or pronounce their sin paid for. I pray first, Lord, that everyone in this room and everyone listening that their sins, they would know that their sins are paid for, that their eyes would be opened, that their ears would hear your truth, that they would see their desperate need for you and they would cry out to you, that they would repent and put their faith in you, that they would be saved, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is struggling with areas of sin in their life, Lord. Knowing that you have already won the battle, that they would walk in that freedom. Lord, that they would no longer pick up the yoke of slavery to sin and put it on their back. I pray for freedom for them, Lord, today. I pray that you would give them the courage to tell someone, to get it out in the open, to be held accountable, and then to walk forward and follow you. We don't know how long we have, Lord. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 50 years from now. We don't know. So, Lord, today, today is the day that I pray that they will repent and get their lives right with you. This is your Spirit's work, Lord. We count on you. We rely on you to do what you do. We love you, Lord Jesus. Would you give us strength and courage to live in this wicked and dark hour, to live as light, as a city on a hill, as salt of the earth? Lord, help us get our acts together. Help us get our acts together so that we can reflect your true nature. And that when we share the gospel with someone, it will be powerful because the evidence of what we believe will be seen in the way we live our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your church. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your peace and the hope of eternal glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.